Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host today, Ari Barbalat, and it is my humble blessing to be in dialogue with Dr. Sarah Koplick. She is the, the director of the Aaron David Bram Illel House at the University of New Mexico. We are here to discuss her book, A Political and Economic History of the Jews of Afghanistan, published by Brill Publishers, 2015. Sarah, I'm I'm amazingly lucky and astoundedly grateful to have you as my guest today. Oh, Abby, thank you so much. That's really kind of you. Uh, It isn't exactly a book, but... uh... I hope uh, your audience will find it of interest. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this topic? Where does the history of the Jews of Afghanistan fit in your life story? Oh, well, that's very funny of you. Um, I'm born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, really, um... I became interested in history as a child actually attending religious school um, in the fifth grade. We learned about the Inquisition from a woman who had returned to Judaism, um, who had made her family had maintained um, secret Jewish practices um, in New Mexico for generations. And so she shared a lot of her customs with us. And then in the ninth grade, we learned a lot about Holocaust, and um, we had survivors who would come and speak to our class. And from that starting point, I became interested in history. And then I studied Middle Eastern history in college, um, and I learned Hebrew, some Hebrew and Arabic, and then I wanted to continue my education. And uh, I eventually ended up at the school Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, where I completed a master's degree in Central Asian Studies, and I studied the Bukharan Jews. Uh, and I studied women's religiosity as they were returning, as they were leaving, you know, as the Soviet Union crumbled, and um, there was the labor immigration into Israel, uh, women started to become interested in uh, reviving their religious experience. So I studied that at first. Um, and then I wanted to continue that. But there are no sources in London. Um, but there was a lot of information about about Afghan Jewish history. So I um, kind of fell into the archives. And I started to read about um, what happened to this young woman in 1953, who was abducted um, from her family. And... It was really a compelling story, and I just put my head down on the table and I cried. And I knew that this is a story that had never been told in the in Western sources before. Uh, the history of the Afghan Jewish people, and so from the story of Tolwa, it really illuminated this much larger history of a very small people, but who had experienced. Um, pretty dramatic events in the 20th century and, and before, but nobody really knew about it. And so 
That's what I decided to study. <laughs> there you have it. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey? What story does your book tell? That's a nice question. Thank you. Um, well, so this is the story of, it's kind of a micro history in a sense, because the Afghan Jewish community in the 20th century met with never more than 20,000 people. I mean, excuse me, 5,000 people. And and so because it was so small, um, and yet they experienced so great, so many different aspects of history between Stalinism and communism and collectivization and the influences of that on Afghanistan and then on World War II and Nazi influence and nationalist influence and anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism. It, it's an extraordinary um, sort of kaleidoscope of microcosm of what happened to Jewish people in the 20th century, um, particularly when they needed oxygen. And so here, that's kind of what I talk about. I also provide, in telling the story of Jewish people, we also have kind of an illumination on that economic history of Afghanistan in the middle of the 20th century. And that's interesting. And it's kind of like the Cairo Geniza, you know, because the Cairo Geniza, um, it, it, it tells a Jewish story, right? And it also tells about a thousand year history, economic history of the Eastern Mediterranean. And the same way here, because as Jews were um, minorities with specific um, economic um, role in, in Afghanistan, a larger story of what happened um, to many different minorities and the larger winds of economic change in the whole society in both countries were also in the region. I hope so for people who are interested in Jewish history or those who are interested in economic history in the 20th century, um, I hope we will maybe in it What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, I think uh, sometimes something that might seem really esoteric actually isn't. And that's also, um, that might be something that that your listeners might find of interest, that um, the themes of this small people, um, this small ancient people and what happened to them, also are are experiences that so many others share the possible method. You know, might be of interest. Plus, um, Afghanistan has a very painful, um, recent tragic history. Um, and yet, part of the story may offer some some hope, um, or what is possible, and and hope that things may get better for the country in the future. Um, facing so many terrible why has Afghan jewelry been understudied? It's simply because it's a very small people. <laughs> um, you know, at its height, there were 5,000 individuals in Afghanistan, and that includes Bukharan refugees, refugees from Central, Central Asia. Um, and so I think it was overlooked, of course, because that such a small number. 
can't really generate a larger history. Um, but, but, but it was preserved. And I suppose that's the, that's the wonder of it, that we do have records that help us. And we have enough breadcrumbs that the story is able to be reconstructed. And that's exciting. How did the belief in Pashtun tribes' descent from ancient Israelite tribes impact Afghan and Pashtun policies toward Jews? That's really interesting. So Pashtun people, tribes, in um, in what is now Afghanistan, I have a belief that they're descended from the lost tribe of Israel. And there may be some customs that may be may have been Jewish, like um, they wear something like a talit. There's a very elaborate code of child um, of behavior, and but what we really don't know, you know, did the Pashtun, you know, originate from Jewish tribes or not? I mean, I that's that's not I'm not a genetic genealogist. I am not a you know researcher in in that field. So what would I? But as a historian, what I do know is that these beliefs could be very protective from the Jewish community. So whenever we found a ruler who treated the Jewish community well, whether it was Habib Allah in from 1919, um, oh, actually from 1909 to 1919, or Amman Allah, or later on, all of them referenced uh, their ancient Jewish roots. And so... At, and and use that those ideas were used as a premise of why modern Jews should be protectors. Um, and similarly, with individuals, there were some individual police officers who stopped riots um, in the mid nineteen thirties and forties, and they also drew upon those beliefs. And so again, that was a way that was protected for the Jewish community. And a way, you know, of showing those um, ties between ethnicities and religions, um, of finding kind of a, this larger humanity, a larger web of humanity, and in that way, it was protecting. That, that, you know, that has been, you know, kind of interesting. You alluded to three figures, and I'd like to perhaps ask you more about each one of them. Uh, maybe I'll start with Habibullah, who was Habibullah al-Rahman. Yeah. For listeners who might not be familiar with Afghan history, can you tell us about him? What reforms did he implement in Afghanistan? What relations did he have with Afghan Jews? Okay, so Habibullah Khan was actually, his reign was between 1901 and 1919. Um, and he was the son of Abir Rahman Khan, who was an extraordinarily brutal ruler, literally from 1880s to 1901, who destroyed a lot of the previous um, ethnic inter-ethnic harmony um, where Afghanistan had enjoyed up to that point. Um, so Khabibullah, really, it was a time of healing. There had to be a time of healing and reconstruction for the country. Um, and reconciliation after after all the trauma of his Babish rule. Um, and he started to 
implement or he abolished uh, torture and prison. He established school system. He established a printing and um, he began to have a little bit of um, uh, modern economic practices, trying to have um, some transportation trucks um, for trade, um, and also kind of opening up with society, welcoming um, the ex exiles, highly educated elite exiles came back after Abdel Rahman. And he also, he also allowed the Jewish community to start again their commerce, their trade, when they had been prevented from a lot of that um, under his father. So the caracol trade started up um, again, and um, he he wanted to he 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 respect the Jewish community, and in fact he invited the leader of the Heraiti community to live with him in in the palace in Kabul. Um, but unfortunately, after eight months, the Khan Tar Mullah Akad Dan Cohen Ben Shlomo was murdered. Um, so some of the court really didn't like having a Jewish person there. But um, one time, he, and probably in 1907, he went to visit Herat, and he um, bestowed uh, robes, 12 robes, um, to the Jewish community. And it was kind of, it was a procession with honor guards. And um, the whole point of that was to show his esteem for the Jewish community and that respect um, should be for the, uh, for the Muslims who are living in Herat to show that the, the Amir, the, the ruler, well, if, um, so value the Jewish community and they should too. So I'm very protective uh, again. And then his son, Amman Mawafan, um, was really the big reformer um, in the middle of the 20th century. And he, from his rule was from well, 1919 to around 1929. And he started school system. And he sent um, young people uh, to get Western education. Um, and, um, and he tried to do implement many reforms. And ultimately, it was too much. And he went on a grand tour of Europe, and he was really gone for too long. And at that time, and then after that, unfortunately, he was overthrown. But um, for the decade of the 1920s, uh, it was an, another very positive time for the Jewish community. And some of their sons um, received a stronger education. And um, but. But there, you know, there was a, there was some discomfort uh, with that as well, um, and uh, and also the beginning of these ideas about um, nationalizing export and import trade, and also trade. But the Jewish community really felt safe under him, and they stopped um, blocking their um, where they lived, the areas where the Jews lived. They wouldn't lock the gates like they used to because there was real sense of security in the 
And in fact, um, one writer in 1929, um, he said that on the was kindled under Habibullah, yet Amanullah exceeds his father in kindness. The Jews feel safe under his protection. And indeed they did. In regard to Amanullah, how and why was he overthrown? He wanted, especially it was around women, he wanted to encourage women's education and force child marriages and discourage polygamy, hijab, and purda. And the uh, clerics were really upset about him. Um, and so that, that started a revolt against him. Um, and and so so it's interesting. We have some of the same themes um, that are found even today in Afghanistan or found a hundred years ago. So again, the pivotal role of women in the society and the way that um, women were to be treated um, acquires both um, the strong efforts for reform and then on reactionary um, react re reactions against them, negative reaction. So that's been going on for quite some time. Um, also, I think it's important to note that um, the horse in the 1920s and 30s, while Stalin, um, while there were the purges, collectivization, um, the starvation of millions of people in the Soviet Union, but at the same time in Central Asia, what we saw with this, um, this incredible amount of this huge effort for literacy and um, and literacy for women. And so that was also, so that also impacted Afghanistan's war, I believe, and the reason I do. And I also visited the West and and down and Turkey and Persia and and so he was not so influenced by Lindsay. Who is Muhammad Zahir Shah? You alluded to him uh three three questions ago. Uh why is he notable? What were his policies towards Jews? What is his legacy in the history of modern Afghanistan? Okay. No, I'm sorry, I forgot about the broadcast. So Mohammed Zakir Shah was um, the king of Afghanistan, and he um, ruled from the middle. Well, he had a regent when he was a child. Um, his uncle ruled for him until the early 1950s, from the 30s until the 50s, 33 there, 15, 15, 15, but then, or the late 40s. And then he started to rule in his own right. And he um, he felt a very strong positive connection towards the Jews. It's like his ancient brethren. And he had these gardens um, around the royal palace. And he allowed um, Jews to, to enjoy the garden. And he would sometimes go on walks, you know, especially on Friday. And then talk to the families who are seated, who were into our picnics in the garden, and ask them how they were doing, if the children were being well-treated. Um, and uh, and he was absolutely beloved that it was keen. Um, and when he was deposed, uh, 
the community really felt that they also thought that it wasn't safe anymore and then it was time to break so most of them were back when he like he was deployed. Um, well some Afghan youth, you know, they couldn't take many possessions with them. But sometimes they would take um photographs of the king local when they when they went predominantly to Israel. Yeah. And uh, he helped he was very protective. And he and so uh, that helped to make things better for the Jewish community in the nineteen fifties and sixties. But the the ones who remained who didn't go to Israel. And he also allowed the community to read. Can you tell us about the Karakul lamb trade? What role did Jews play in it? What does this teach us about Afghan economic history and the Jewish relationship to Afghan economic history? So, um, so I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Curly black wool, and it was a very, it was very um, popular in the 1940s and 50s, and perhaps your grandparents or great grandparents, great grandmothers would wear on um, a jacket that was this curly black wool. Um, and also among Turkmen, um, the traditional hats that they wear um, also are of this um, this wool. So. Uh, Turkmen in Turkmenistan, the area now Turkmenistan, um, this is this is uh, the sheep that um, the sheep that uh, come from this area. That's what they look like. And um, Jews and Turkmen um, have had historically very positive water well, connections because um, in the eight, in the eighteenth nineteenth century, um, Turkmen. Sometimes were uh, would enslave Persians, um, but they wouldn't enslave Jews because um, the Jews acted as an intermediary between the Turkmen and the settled population. Following, and so, so what would happen is the Turkmen were the shepherds, and um, then they would sell um, the skins of the sheep to the Jews. Who would who traded on um, traded with skin um, first in Central Asia and the Clara and or finance and then later um, after the rise of Stalin, were Turkmen and their brought their flocks with them as they were escaping um, Soviet Central Asia and then and finding refuge in Afghanistan and so there was a, a strong connection then. Between Afghan first foreign Central Asian Jews and their and Afghan Jews um, and the Turkmen trade and um, the Turkmen shepherds and um, they had a, a strong connection. Um, and what's also important about the caracal trade is that this um, caracal skins didn't go bad; they went rot. And unlike the other important um, economic it, you know, what was produced in Afghanistan, which were the bride feet and that. And so, of course, they had a shelf where after a certain amount of time, after a year or two, you know, they wouldn't, you can't, you couldn't eat them anymore. But um, the skins um, were allowing Afghanistan to have one. 
purchase foreign currency. They were very valued in the West. And so that began the beginning of um, the nationalization of Afghanistan's economy started with cold schemes. Um, and so at the beginning, you know, Jews played a really important role in that trade because they were really trusted at the chartment. But um, later, when it when um, the ruling elite realized how valuable the caracol trade was, then it started the beginning of a great deal and difficult to get um, But in fact, no. Studying what happened precisely in the caracol trade really um, shines light on the larger, larger theme in Afghan economic history, and there was these um, multiple times where the government tried to nationalize the um, caracol trade, which caused a great deal of um, pain and um, difficulty for the Turkmen traders and for the Jewish community. And ultimately, ran to the Jewish community's expulsion from all of the small towns in the northern rim of the country and their forcible settlement, uh, forcible move into both Herat and Kabul And that came about as um, the government in the 1930s nationalized the terrible trade. So what happened to Thank you. Can you tell us about Jacob Chai Pinchas, the Jewish caracol trader? Why is he important? Sure. So there was this man um, and in so he was he, we think he was a Bukharan Jew and we think he got Afghan citizenship. Well, he appeared to have gotten Afghan citizenship, but he lived in London. And so that's the reason then we know some of his story, because he lived in London. Um, and then he started to have problems. And he so he traveled from London, um, then to Bombay, Peshawar, Kabul. And then he went up into mazar sorry, where all the caracol sellers were congregated um, in 1933, 1932. And he tried to buy some caracol skins. Um, but then he was considered under suspicion by um, one of the higher government representatives. Anyway, um, he eventually, um, it, he, there was suspicion about him that he was going to somehow you know, steal the trade and, and um, he was going to allow the early um, nationalization process. He said, it's just beginning. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so there's a lot of suspicion about him and, but he still tried to, you know, purchase skins for, for his, um, business in London and, but eventually he got burned to prison and, um, and, and, and then he ends, but then he was released because he got dysentery. And in 1936, he applied to go back to the um, but, but that was turned down. And so he appears to have lived for quite some time in Peshawar, and he doesn't know exactly what happened to him. 
but it so but his story he 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 had a lot of problems, and his story really shows that um how the Carol trade, how the families lived in different cities. They started, you know, it would be there would be a, one brother in London, another one in Shaw, or Hobble, and they would trade amongst each other, send skins or other goods between them. And he had, unfortunately, he carried a letter from the deposed Amir of Bukhara. And so that was considered suspicious. Um, but it also shows that um, when the Jewish traders were trying to work within the new system, the new monopoly system that had been established in Afghanistan, um, it could be very difficult for them, very dangerous. And, um, and so his story is sort of like the beginning of the end of the traditional pattern of trade between Turkmen and Jewish. You allude to two high-profile Jewish prisoners in Afghanistan, Shmuel Shabtai Dadash and Shmuel Ben Hananya Yakutiel, who were charged with espionage in 1933. Who were they? What befell them? Can you elaborate? Well, um, Dadash was actually sent to um, to Soviet Central Asia in the um, in the 1920s. Um, now, under Amanullah as a teenager, and he studied well, Russian, Arabic, Turkish, and English. In fact, he wrote a really important handwritten dictionary while translating words from Judeo, the Judeo-Persian dialect of Afghanistan into English. And, and this was a really important record that in this um, a researcher in Israel, I believe, has risked little um headless dictionary to this day. Um and so he had a wonderful education and then he came back to Afghanistan and he got married. Um but then he was imprisoned under the regency uh, of the Fashion Plan before Zagir Shah. And, and um so he really suffered a lot on a random channel. And he and he kind of experienced both extremes very good and very bad experiences. And eventually he here he was freed and he um woke at the end of the bike. So that's you know, it's kind of a, a tragic story. Um but one where he's are caught in between these very different trends in Afghanistan, between one in your progressive and another one very fearful. Can you tell us about the history of Mashhadi Jews in Afghanistan? How did they come to migrate there? How did they socially and culturally adapt and evolve? within the Afghan context. Can you contextualize their history and their presence in Afghanistan? So, Mashhad is a city in northeastern Iran, and um, it's a holy, it's a place of, it's a, it's a holy city for Shia Muslim. And in the uh, 1740s, there was a Sunni ruler of the, of the Persian Empire 
named um, Nadir Shalt. And he, um, he, we believe he wanted, he had like a cache of treasures and he also wanted to stimulate trade. So he decided that he would put 60 Jewish families in Mashhad or near Mashhad to near Mashhad to guard his treasure. But then he died and the families were still in root. And eventually they were in different cities and eventually they all ended up in Mashhad for about another 100 years. And so you had these families in a holy Shia city, uh, which is a very precarious place for them to be. Um, and then in the 1830s, um, the, there was wars between the Persian Empire and the British, and um, and and there's and it was a very difficult time um, in Mashhad in 1839, and then um, and there's a blood libel against the Jewish community, and. Well, the whole community was forcibly converted to Islam in March 1839, an event called Allah Dad, where God gives. And um, this, and, and actually, the community never returned to an open practice of Judaism in Marshall following, but they were able to maintain the secret uh, practice of Judaism in their form. And the reason why is because of the, the way that women's space in Muslim home um, was not for outsiders. No outsider could enter in a, and no outside man would enter in a space for women. And so the community continued to practice Judaism secretly. What they would do is they would put a woman in front of a doorway um, where inside the men were praying. But it, again, it was considered women's space. Um, and so, and also this community was very successful in that they all returned to Judaism. They, made, they practiced Islam externally for about another 100 years, but then they all returned to Judaism as they were able to bond when in Tehran or on one day in the bridge to Israel. But anyway, because they were hit, they were externally Muslim and hidden Jews, they, um, they were writing in Farsi. Um, they, some of them were, um, had maintained close relations with imam, uh, imams and, and other Muslim and, um, at, and that was one group, the Taliban Islam, the students of Islam. That group um, uh, showed much more external, you know, interest, right, interest in Islam, and so they became wealthier. They were able to do, were able to trade um, in a way that um, Jews just weren't able before. But then there was another group who were very angry, and they wrecked just as soon as they possibly could. And they went into the desert. And they sometimes um, joined horsemen. They sometimes joined up with Turkmen tribes and um, would sometimes fight against um, the Persian as member, or, uh, as a Persian associate member of a Turkmen tribe. 
Um, and so they, the angry one, um, they also augmented the population of that they also became a really important part of the Afghan Jewish community because of this wave of, of, of Jewish, crypto-Jewish refugees um, were fleeing Russia and entering Afghanistan, they were able to return to Judaism because the Sunni Muslim of Afghanistan didn't recognize that Shia Islam was real Islam. So the Jews could return to Judaism without having to worry about the consequences out of converting out of Islam, which is normally punishable by death. Um, and so they, so the, so Mashadi Jews um, really helped to revitalize the Afghan Jewish population. And, um, and, and that's where we see the beginning of a larger modern Jewish community in Afghanistan is after 1840. Can <laughs> you comment on the similarities and differences between Jewish refugees, Uzbek refugees, Turkmen refugees, and Christian Russian refugees situations in Afghanistan before and during World War II? Well, sure. So let me fast forward a little bit. So what we just had, right, what I just described in pre is in, you know, 1830s, 1840s. Uh -huh. uh, so Jews entered into Afghanistan and they stayed there you know, for about 100 years. And sometimes it was very difficult. So in 1856, um, uh, the, Persian, the Persian army uh, entered Herat and decided that all the Jews that were living there in Herat were actually belonged to, to the empire. Um, to Persian. And so they took them all, they forcibly took them back to Mashhad and they put them in an, an old parallel sarai, sort of like a, out, sort of like an open air prison. And the Jews who were the crypto Jews, the Didal Islam, the newcomers to Islam, um, really helped, um, gave them food and supplies and enabled them to survive it because in that time and eventually they returned to Herod. And then we can see then what happened to um, the community is, you know, went to various rulers and sometimes it was okay, sometimes it wasn't. And there were maybe about a thousand Jews that were in, uh, lived in Afghanistan. And, and so it was a very small community and kept very quiet. Um, another important thing about this community is that the women lived in the city in Kabul and Herat and men would travel the northern rim of the country to trade and caracol trade and, and other kinds of trade. And then they would also go into the Russian Empire and into Western Europe or to India. And so they were gone for long periods of time. Um, and so the women really maintained their households in the cities. Um, and then so it was a very small community until um, uh, collectivization and purges um, under Islam. And then there started to be these waves of refugees coming from the north into Afghanistan, into the northern tier of Afghanistan. Um, and the Afghan government treated them all very differently. Um, Uzbek and, and Turkmen and, and the Muslim population, Muslim refugees from Central Asia 
were well treated by the Afghan government. They were allowed to settle. They were allowed to work. Um, Jewish refugees, Bukharan, Bukharans predominantly, had a much more difficult time. They were not allowed to work. They were also rounded up into old caravansarai, um, and eventually they were apparently deported from war into the cities. Um, they really struggled. And then, but the worst experiences were probably for Christian refugees who um, were deported to China across the Wakhan Corridor in Afghanistan. And that, that meant pretty much certainly death. So most Christian refugees would not have survived. But, but you could see the three different ways that refugees were treated dependent upon their religion. And can you tell us about Mayor Shamualov and his daughter Tova? Can you tell the story of Tova's kidnapping? What was the Kabul Jewish community's response? Um, you too. Um, yes. So in November of 1955, the, actually, there was a letter that was sent to London to the Jewish community in London that describes how um, this, a father of a 13-year-old girl named Togwa said that, you know, his daughter didn't return from home from school on the first day of Ramadan. And he went to the police and they searched for her. But then um, the police chief came back to the police commissioner came back and said, well, they found the girl when she wished to convert to Islam. And then um, in the letter, that was written um, to London, um, Mayor Shamwala, he said, um, he learned that Tova was locked out and she was being denied and she was being beaten with canes and compelled to um, convert to Islam. And um, she was told that she had already been declared to have accepted Islam and now if she wanted to become a Jew again, she would be tortured, um, treated and, and killed. And so, so the father was, of course, the family was absolutely beside himself. And they went to the deputy prime minister of Kabul, who promised to help, but then unfortunately didn't do anything. And then the next day, the father visited the palace round at Pathanan, and he presented his petition with King to Zahir Shah, as Zahir Shah passed in a procession. And the next day, he, um, the father was invited into the king's palace, and they and the king agreed that Tova would be returned to her family. Um, but she, but for some reason she was still not returned. Um, and then one day on Afghan Independence Day, um, Tova's mother went to the ladies' garden, and she saw her daughter there. And then um, in the letter writes that. Um, she beseeched Toba to get her freed, um, and uh, but she couldn't. And then Bonder write that you know he is a middle class man who spent all of his resources to get back my beloved child. We are boldly upset with her separation and her torture and distress. And I have been threatened that if I took any further steps to get back my daughter, uh, Muslims in Kabul would attack all Jews and kill them all. But I needed the strength, nor the voice and influences. There is no democratic or lawful rule in Kabul where I could place my grievance and be heard. Therefore, I humbly approach and request Jewish brethren outside to use all the means at their command 
and he restored my beloved child to me. What, so what the father did is he, he's writing to London to ask for help um, from the Jewish community there. And later on, the, um, the board deputies of British Jews asked to speak to the Afghan ambassador, um, who said, well, she's pitching good. There's lots who can do what she wants. Um, and so we really, so for some time, I really didn't know what happened to Boba. But later on, um, I interviewed a woman in Israel, and she said that um, in during that day, uh, um, you know, she got to know she she liked a, a young boy, and you know, went home with him. They're not sure if she really wanted to marry him or not, or what would happen. Um, but um, somehow they were like the Jewish community was able to secure her release. Um, and she eventually returned to their Jewish community and immigrated to Israel and had a had a life that was back in um, in the Jewish community. Whereas in the past, um, in previous generations, that would have been impossible um, because um, children were abducted, you know, for centuries from the Jewish community, and they never returned. Um, and so at the moment. The community was able to use its contacts, um, both domestically and internationally, with the help of Zakir Shah, with the help of the Afghan ambassador, um, and with their own influence, that um, she was an Afghan and a little bit of first Can you can you tell us about Afghan economic history in the 1930s? Well, oh, absolutely. Um, so. The history of the Jewish community of Afghanistan is really tied to what happened um, in the 1930s and um, for as far as government policy. Uh, so, um, as well, clerical um, flocks began to go into Afghanistan, Afghan government directed this was a very lucrative trade um, and would really help to generate revenue for individual. Um, government officials, but also for the country as a whole. And, and so, and yet it was the same time where uh, Afghanistan was stepping very carefully in between the Soviet Union on one side and the British Empire. And so they had to figure out a way to navigate a very, very difficult situation. Um, and so one of the things they came up with was kind of a sort of a Soviet model of nationalizing the most lucrative parts of the trade. And as that would, was considered as a way to protect against Soviet universe into the economy, interesting in it. Um, and so this system of monopolization started, and it was called Shirkat Rashami, Shirkat Law, and it eventually became the National Bank. Um, and so what happened was, as I alluded to in the story of Jacob by Peter Fass, that um, Jewish traders were no longer um, allowed for free access to the um, to the herders, the Turkmen herd um, sheep shepherds, and um, and to the caracals in. And now it had to go through this government monopoly system. And then the system was um, implemented by a man named Abdul Abdul Majid Farmzabindi, and he had been educated. Yeah, and 
in the Lutheran Soviet Union. He lived sometime there as well as in Germany. And he um, he came up with a system as a way, as ostensibly to protect um, the Afghan economy. But, you know, economies are really kind of fragile and having big changes quickly um, caused a great deal of distress for the Turkmen shepherds, for the Jewish community, for um, these minorities who really suffered as a result of the policies that were implemented to get the re resources into Pashtun Afghan, ethnic Afghan. Um, and uh, so it was really very difficult. Um, in fact, I want to read to you a little excerpt that um, came from a British businessman in 1941. And he wrote, he said, the whole Afghan trade, except the last important free trade in Kandahar, was formerly in the hands of Indians from Peshawar and Oriental Jews, Bukharans and Persians. These people used to buy Persian skins in free competition in Mazar, Antoy, and Bakcha, bring them to Peshawar and London and sell them to European and American firms. They were intermediaries between the Afghan producer and the American or European consumer. And I must say that the very great confidence that existed between the Turkmen's and the Oriental Jews, which made this credit deal possible. When the market was up, everyone when the market was up, everyone felt the advantage. The small sheep owner, the small dealer in Turkestan, the big Afghan dealer in the Indian or Oriental dealer in Peshawar or London. And the market in it, the market decreased, everyone felt a bluff. And so, and so, so that's the way it had, that's what happened before. But then with this new CISPA where um, the monopolization system came and all of a sudden, it, the same businessman said, uh, the sheep owner gets practically nothing for his skin and he's not supposed to know the exact market price. This is why buyers are not allowed up north. And if you realize that a few hundred thousand people breed sheep there, most have been on small blocks. You will understand that the new policy has brought misery. The real producers are not allowed the benefit of a rising market. And um, then he went on to say that if he had tried to do, to if the caracol trade had been in Pashtun hands, this policy never would have um, succeeded because there would have been too much um, protest and too much pressure on the government. But because these were two different ethnic minorities, and well, religious minority with Jews and ethnic minority with the Turkmen, um, the policy was successful. But it um, it meant that you know, Turkmen shepherds were in poverty or impoverished significantly. And what happened as a result of these early monopolization policies was that the entire Jewish population, community, in the northern tier of Afghanistan was forcibly expelled. They became internal refugees and they had to live in either Herat or Kabul. They couldn't, they could no longer live in any of the towns in the north. Um, and so, so yeah, so it, it um, caused a great deal of suffering. And later, um, the Jewish community kind of learned how to navigate the system, and they um, began to get um, the higher 
or to work in um, cooperation with Muslim men who would front the business. So Muslim men were, were the Muslim men would be the official owner of the business, and then the Jewish men would be in the background helping, monitoring, well, explaining how the business worked, and and so that so they had to work together. But that's how the Jewish community got around the Bilal prescription uh, against one of the, the prohibition that uh one Jews being the actually and um, bring the lectures on um, from the terracotta trade. Um, and yeah. and that was really was way down the community was a great deal of impoverishment. And that was the strong impetus, one of the reasons why they really sought to leave Afghanistan. Who is Prime Minister Mohammed Hashim Khan? Why is he important? Okay. So Mohammed Khashim Khan was prime minister from 1933 to 1946. And he was the brother of Nadir Shah, who um, was uh, the king of Afghanistan from 1929 to 1933, but then he was assassinated. Um, so Zahir Shah was um, the next in the line, but he was really young. So for, thir- so for 13 years, Khashim Khan ruled as you read it, um, on Zakir's behalf. And he was very much opposed to, but he is very, um, he was, he is not, he was not positively inclined to do that day. But he shepherded the country through the really difficult time in World War II as Afghanistan navigated going between empires going between the Soviet Union, the British Empire, and also navigating on Nazi Germany and the relationship between them. Mm-hmm. So the Jewish community really suffered under his regency, um, but they were not outright shielded, um, but they they endured. Can you tell us about Abdul? Majid Khan Sabuli. Why is he notable? Oh, well, Abdul Majid Khan um, was a really important um, economic leader, well, economic, well, he in charge of economic policy in Afghanistan. He's the one who came up with the idea of the monopolization system. Um, and he was also the one who really made overtures to Nazi Germany, and it was seen as a way to is a third kind of way because um, Afghanistan didn't want to be in the sphere, the strong sphere of either the Soviet Union or the British Empire. And so uh, Germany was the third, the third way out. Uh, um, and so he negotiated um, with uh, Hitler. And, but, but the same, but were levels of anti Semitism. And uh, that that were seen in Nazi Germany certainly did not occur in Afghanistan. It wasn't the same. Um, and also, the Afghans became increasingly frustrated with the ways that um, research to buy weapons from Nazi Germany. But the weapons would they would buy them, but no ammunition arrived, or they would buy you know another kind of machine gun, but. They were missing basic parts. 
um, and so it really didn't do them any good. Um, and, they, and then they found out that they were being charged twice as much as Turkey and Persia in Iran, and um, were really frustrated by one. Um, and later in the war, as the war progressed, on um, that um, the Nazi German diplomats were all expelled. Um, from that against them after Afghanistan. And then, interestingly, in the middle of the war, Afghanistan tried to have German Jewish experts come to Afghanistan um, to help to help the country, but actually the British prevented them. But that was another interesting case. Um, so we see, you know, both positive and negative were there any afghan jews in britain france germany and or the soviet union prior to world war ii or during world war ii what if anything is known about afghan jews in europe during world war ii and the holocaust oh um so actually uh Afghan Jews were were settled in cities throughout Western Europe, um, in New York, Jerusalem, Peshawar, uh, um, Bombay, Leipzig, Berlin, Paris, London, and New York. They were already settled there at the nineteen, excuse me, about the nineteen thirties, and that's the reason why we know this history because of these traders. Um, and as I mentioned before, oftentimes what would happen would be there'd be a brother in in several uh, in different cities. There'd be one brother in Kabul or Peshawar, another one in Jerusalem, another one in Western Europe, and they trade with each other. And they're also on writing letters to each other. And so some of these letters ended up in Western archives. And that's how we know the story of what happened to Afghan Jews. But yes, there were Afghan Jews throughout in, in Europe in World War II, following certainly in London and then in Paris as well. And what we know is that um, there was one Afghan diplomat who was willing to protect the Jewish community, um, that means that the Jewish community. Well, Afghan, Persian, Bukharan Jews, and on both from the Caucasus in Inkites. And he worked with another on the other never man found on Bukhar. And the community itself was safe from the Holocaust because um, Georgian diplomats and Iranian diplomats um with the help of a Bukharian Jewish man, came up with its incredible um, kind of farce. And they said that um, Jews weren't really Jewish. They were actually um, Aryan, and that they were just, uh, you know, they just happened to have, you know, the um, mosaic belief system, but they were racially Aryan. And so this... Um, Farce protected all of the Central Asian and Ethiopian community in Paris, and only one of them died in World War II. 
What did Afghan Jews know about Zionism and the Yishuv prior to 1948? How did they know? Can you comment on Afghan Jews' attitudes toward and perspectives toward Zionism? So Afghan Jews had uh, were religious Zionists, um, religiously, uh, in that, um, that dawn of modern state of Israel was, they had a, like a messianic anticipation of it. Um, they certainly knew about the issue because of their uh, trading connection, um, and the long distance, you know, uh, trade and communication that happened between different, you know, all the siblings and families. And um, we were really connected to other Jewish communities because of international trade. Um, and they were really, really excited about the creation of the state of Israel. And so while in the late 1940s, there were riots against, um, against the community, um, we know that sometimes like the chief of police protect the community on you know religious belief while Pashtun descent from the Jews that all that was very protected in the community but sometimes um they still endured um, riots and murder and um, and and harm and physical harm because of um the creation state of Israel, but nothing like what we, you know, it was not what one saw on Interact, for example, or in many other parts of the Muslim world. Um, but the Jewish community was not on to the same extent at all. Um, and they were really, they were, but they were absolutely overjoyed by their creation of the state of Israel. And in fact, there's one letter that um, was written in the next in the late 1940s, um, 1941, and I don't want to read a little some excerpts of it um, for you if you don't mind, because I think it's really interesting. So, and it, it starts to your honor the high and mighty government of Israel. Shalom. With great pleasure, we send to the heights of the mountains of Zion to your excellency. Our original party and eternal greetings. We express with a full heart our feelings that you will be triumphant forever. We bless you with the blessing God who has kept us alive, sustained us, and enabled us to reach this day. For thousands of years, the people of Israel were in exile and scattered under a foreign yoke. Their wandering feet did not find rest, and their hope was to find the day of salvation. And now this day has come. Now, in the end of days, from a flight of trouble and distress, God has enlightened the people of Israel with salvation and bravery. Um, the holy people of Israel was filled with bravery to achieve this precious land and sit on its throne with high governance, the excellency of the Messiah and God of Jacob. Your honor, we are in the darkness of bitter exile and do not feel the sweetness of the shining light upon us. And it is like we are dreaming. As it is written, when God returns to Zion, we will be as if dreaming. We believe that God has sworn an eternal covenant to bring us back to the land. And even if this day of wandering was very long and our people were scattered from one side of the heavens to another, we still hope that the time has come to return to our homeland 
and to renew our youth in the land like an eagle. From now on, we have no choice but to pray before God and the one who brings salvation, to strengthen the hands of those who defend our country, the Holy Land, and to raise up our Messiah and to draw together all the members of our scattered people. Amen. After all this, we have to let you know, Your Excellency, how horrible our well situation is. Every day our exile becomes greater and we are left without work. All the doors of commerce are locked to us. All the gates of the land are closed to us. Nobody can come or go, neither from inside nor from outside. Exile causes us such grief. We don't have any more strength to suffer, to make a livelihood, or to provide for the necessities of life. We sold all our household goods and we are left with empty hands, and we don't know what will become of us. And we therefore turn to you, asking your Excellency to help us as soon as possible. For if our exile continues for more months, all of us will be lost from lack of means to support ourselves. Please, 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 we beg you that as long as we are to live, spare us, have mercy upon us. You have a duty and a mitzvah to take care of these thousand souls of Israel. As it is expressed in the Gemara, if one saves the life of Israel, it is as if the whole world has been saved. Until now, we have not sent you a letter of briefing and request because there was no post between the government of Israel and the Afghan government. And also we are in danger in the midst of our exile. For all of this, we ask your pardon. It has been for the past 15 years or more that the majority of our population immigrated to the land and we were separated. A man from his brother, a father and a mother from their son, and a brother from his brother and sister. We received news from them that some joined the Israeli army or other governmental offices, and we did not know what became of them until a letter came from the community of Afghanistan and Israel that among those who died in the 48 war, 24 were from our community. When this sad news arrived, one eye shed tears, and the other eye was happy, for they were killed for our people and for the city of our God and our native land. What is more, their government takes care of their relation and gives them reward. Yet we cannot take care of all of our needs. If this style of this letter is not beautiful, we beg your pardon and we will keep it short instead of prolonging it. And therefore we pray to God that we will soon see each other in the face of the Messiah, the God of Jacob, and the rest of the ministers of the government of our land, the land of Israel. Belong from the Holy Community of Haram, Afghanistan. And John is signed by Joseph Cohen and Shilapo. So this is an extraordinary letter in that it um it um but also they their their Zionism was really through a biblical end. But um, they believe that you know their the day of salvation is coming. And so, you know, they were disappointed. That's not exactly what happened, and it took some years for most of the community to leave Afghanistan alone, and they were allowed to leave know, because of Zahir Shah. But Zahir Shah said, you know, there was not going to be, there wasn't going to be a plane coming down, um, and they were to leave through the regular routes that people would normally leave Afghanistan um, through the buses going first to Mashhad. Um, and then to Tehran in the end out on Israel. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought that, you know, that this um, letter gives um, our listeners 
a sense of the intensity of longing for can you comment on the attitudes of India, Pakistan, and Iran toward Afghan Jews' emigration to Israel? Sure. So, um, in the 1930s, uh, some Jews fled into India um, and ended up in a courtyard, actually, in the Bombay Synagogue. And they stayed there through 1947. Um, 48, 49, and eventually what happened was um, Israel sent a plane to pick them up. Before they picked up Jews from the end, it first went to Bombay, and all of them were picked up there. And India really had a, a lot bigger problems. Um, and so they were just, they, they, it, too much was happening with the partition and a million people who perished um, or in the creation of India and Pakistan. So um, the Afghan Jews living in a courtyard, and the synagogue, they really weren't so important. Um, there was some high-level correspondence um, between the Indian and Israeli governments, which allowed the flight, but mostly they were camping more. And Pakistan, with community, um, there was a community of shower, but soon after, um, it's it, after 47, mostly they left. And um, in Iran, well, they were tolerated. Um, in Mashhad, again, like a hundred years before, the Mashadi community protected um, the Jews who had left it and Jews who had arrived, and eventually they made their way to Tehran, where they were allowed, where there was interaction between the Israeli government and Randy Morton, and then the Wagan and eventually. As we bring our dialogue to a close, can you tell us about your current research? Um, what have you been working on since completing this project? Thank you so much. So, um, so really, my work has really changed direction right now. Um, you know, because I live in New Mexico, now I'm really more focusing on the Sephardic experience and crypto Jewish experience in the New World. And we, there's a, a rare modern Jewish a manuscript of a, a crypto Jewish woman um, who returned to an open practice of Judaism in the 1970s in New Mexico. And got back to the one I'm working on right now. He helped to have that published within the years. So, um, and that's the work that I'm doing now. But also, um, there should, there's going to be an exhibit at the Museum of the Bible about Afghanistan um, in in 2023. So if you're interested in Afghan Jewish history, um, I encourage you to stay tuned um, because there's going to be a wonderful new book published, a key book published by the Grail. And Ali, I hope that you'll be able to interview the um, editor of the book is lost. And that would be amazing. I would love to. I'd be thrilled to. Thank you. Great. I for your time and all of your very um your excellent questions and all of your interest in this research. Thank you. I'm absolutely honored by your magnanimity and by your thoughtful, erudite, and eloquent responses to all the questions we discussed today.
I could not have been luckier to have had such a beautiful experience with you. I consider myself unbelievably fortunate. Well, you're so kind, Abby. Well, I wish you all the best and and taking again. Okay. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Sarah Koplik. We have been discussing her book, A Political and Economic History of the Jews of Afghanistan, published in Leiden, Netherlands, by Brill Publishers 2015. Sarah is director of the Aaron David Graham Hillel House at the University of New Mexico.